Vladimir Putin given several speeches and even wrote a paper recently where he talks about Ukraine and essentially said that Ukraine is not a real country. It's just simply a part of Russia and that therefore he believes it shouldn't exist and he should take it over. And so he's continued since 2014, since he's taken pieces of Ukraine to try to destabilize and create chaos there hoping that the, the government will fall, and it hasn't fallen, so therefore maybe he's ready to take the next step and send in his own troops. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. For months, there's been ongoing troop buildup at the Russia-Ukraine border. And over the last several weeks, the tension between the United States and Russia has continued to rise. I wanted to get a better understanding of the current situation at the Ukraine border and what escalation could mean for the United States. That's why I'm very excited to talk to John Seifer today. John spent 28 years in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, and during his time in the CIA, he served multiple tours as Chief of Station and Deputy Chief of Station in Europe, Asia, and in high-threat environments. He ran the CIA's Russia operations at headquarters and was also a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, which is the leadership team that guides CIA activities globally. He's also a co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, a production company that makes espionage shows and films. John, thank you for making some time today and welcome back to Politicology. Glad to see you again. Thanks for having me. So last spring, I spoke with Molly McHugh about the initial buildup of Russian troops at the Ukrainian border. And there are now as many as 100,000 troops at the border. Why don't we start with a little bit of background and maybe you can explain to everybody what they're doing there. Well, it's interesting because it's not 100% clear what they're doing there. They certainly could be there because Vladimir Putin, the dictator in Russia, wants to use them to invade Ukraine, or they could be there to put pressure on the West to get concessions for something else that Putin wants. And so th- you mentioned that th- this happened in the spring also. And so what's interesting is, is Vladimir Putin has had this sort of pattern of whenever he wants something from the West, he will create a crisis. He'll create a, you know, he'll put troops to the border or he'll, he'll do something that creates a crisis and then seek concessions to try to get the de-escalate that crisis. And so um, this could be that. It could be him just trying to get people to pay attention to him and, and, and pay attention to his concerns and things that he wants done. Or it could be that he's looking to reinvade Ukraine. So we need to remember that in 2014, he seized a good portion of Ukraine, the Crimean Peninsula, and also sent irregular troops into the eastern part of Ukraine called the Donbass, which is right on the border with, with Russia. And so he's had you know a good six, seven years of essentially destabilizing and taking pieces of Ukraine already. And I think, you know, if we look back, he, he was very concerned that Ukraine was moving in a western direction. If you remember in 2014 there was protests on the street, the sort of pro-Russian president at the time fled to, to Russia. And Ukraine looked like it was going to be much more closely into the Western camp instead of the Russian camp. And so he actually seized portions of land. He's continued to try to destabilize Ukraine. And as you might expect, that has not gone well for him. Ukraine has become less pro-Russian over time, Mm. more pro-Western over time. And I think this is sort of the next step is he wants to have a vassal state. He wants to have a state that's 
pro-Russian or at least will follow Russian's dictates on his border. And he may see that this is his last chance to do that. I want to get to the strategic importance of Ukraine in a moment, and we can talk about NATO. But before we do, since you mentioned Crimea, and I think most people will be familiar with the story, the annexation, um, can you help us understand how the U.S. approached Russia policy in the wake of that uh, seizure? And then, you know, through the Trump administration and, and ultimately, what was the hand that President Biden and his team inherited last January? Oh, good. Ryan. I think it's a good point because essentially um, the Biden team is sort of in a tough place. They have less tools to work with than we might have hoped because in the past, and it wasn't just, it was sort of the Obama administration, but even the Bush administration before that, and then certainly the Trump administration, we've never really pushed back hard on, on Putin. Putin has taken these kind of actions, you know, assassinations in the West, constant interference in Western election misinformation, subversion, sabotage all around in, in West and our countries, messed in our elections in 2016, as if you remember, talks about using the Taliban to go after American troops, uh, such a wide variety of things. And every time when we've come to the table on this, we've pushed back, but we've always pushed back uh, just enough so that hoping that we would leave room for him to change, right? So you don't want to, we didn't want to push too hard thinking that perhaps, um, you know, if we give him an off-ramp, he'll take that off-ramp and, and things will get better. Now, we've had 20 years of him in power, and we've continued to try to do this reset or, or you know, give him room or, or accommodate him in some fashion, and it's never worked. And so by the time we're here at 2021, 2022, the administration is sort of stuck because they've created this pattern of Putin creating a crisis, us running to him trying to give some concessions to sort of say, hey, listen, just tamp this down. We don't want a war. And he gets what he wants. And then the next time he pushes further and further. And so by the time we get to the Biden administration, there's sort of this pattern here of us never really pushing back and deterring Vladimir Putin, us never really holding at threat the things that he really cares about. And so now when it looks like you know Putin might be ready to go to war to actually reinvade and take all of Ukraine possibly, we don't have as many tools at our disposal. Um, and Putin, seeing what we've done in the past and also seeing what's happened recently in places like Afghanistan and others, may think they're weak and he can get away with it. We don't have to do it right now. Maybe we should come return to it. But I want to talk about that piece that Ann Applebaum wrote about the bad guys are winning and sanctions. Did you read that? I did, yeah. I was just, you know, maybe I'll just ask you now and we can insert it uh, wherever. But um I do wonder, since we have this history of trying to leave room, but using sanctions more than any other weapon, it seems, uh, more than any other tool uh, to regulate the behavior of you know autocrats like Putin, uh, whether or not that device persistently over time has sort of forced this network of autocrats to uh, find other ways of moving money around the world. It's sort of a, almost like a permanent network to evade sanctions as a matter of necessity more than anything else. And whether or not you think that tool is still useful. Uh, it's a very interesting point you bring up, Ron. And, and when we look at modern day Russia and contrast it with what was the Soviet Union, there are a lot of similarities. But one of the things that's a little bit different is Modern Russia has become sort of a corrupt kleptocratic state with money around the world. And they're able to use that money to sort of push it into places like London and the United States and into other places to, to, to use that as leverage. And so um, 
what we have done in the past, because you know we're such a powerful economic state, we've, we've tended to use sanctions as our main political tool, as opposed to during the Cold War when deterrence was based upon you know, having active military presence, active nuclear presence, to be able to push back and, and, and threaten the things that the Soviet Union cared about. And so now we tend to focus on these sanctions. And Vladimir Putin has now, again, had 20 years of us threatening economic sanctions and actually sanctioning him. And he's weathered them quite fine. It's not clear that he's changed his his actions or that he's decided that, you know, this is he can't weather these sanctions. And because we have often made it clear that, hey, if you if you keep moving this way, we're going to do this sanction. We might do that sanction. People talk about pulling them out of the SWIFT banking system, all these type of things. So there's nothing really that surprises Putin and his, his cronies. They know the kind of things that we're threatening. And so they've had a lot of time to come up with alternative ways to do these things, either by keeping their money, you know, in a variety of different places or working with China to create an alternative system that they can they can work with. And so I, I think, you know, sanctions have had some effect and they're 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 useful to a certain extent. But if we think that economic sanctions are going to stop him from doing the things that we don't want him to do. I think we're being a bit naive. Okay. That's really helpful. So let's talk about uh, NATO and let's talk about the strategic importance of Ukraine because much of the focus uh, in the reporting has been about tension over Ukraine's ties to NATO. And Russia wants assurances that Ukraine won't ever be allowed to join Ukraine wants to move closer to NATO, and the NATO countries want to leave the door open. So can you sort of lay out the board here for us and explain the strategic importance of NATO to Ukraine and why Russia wants to keep them out? And uh, why don't we start there? Well, it was George Kennan, the famous um, U.S. diplomat and and foreign policy expert, who, who said, you know, essentially anyone on the borderlands of Russia, either is going to be a vassal or an enemy. And if you're not one, you're the other. And so they, Putin wants to make sure that he has people on his a sphere of influence in the area near him where he can control those states. He wants to make sure Ukraine, which is a, which is a very large and ethnic Slavic country, uh, has at least, if not a pro-Russian bent, will never threaten or will at least follow the dictates of, of, of Russia. And that's not happened. It's, it's moved more and more to the West, and, and largely it's moved to the West because of, of Putin's policies. And so he's invaded, he's taken Crimea, he's taken part of the East, he's continued to do cyber attacks and, and efforts to subvert the, the government there and those type of things. And so what he has now is on his border is essentially an increasingly successful democratic country. And when you're a despot, when you're a uh, when you're a dictator in charge of a, a large country, that is a threat to your country. So, before we move into what NATO and Ukraine and and, and Ukraine joining NATO, the main thing to remember here: this is really about Vladimir Putin's survival. All right, this has to do with internal politics as much as anything else. Uh, he needs he wants to stay in power among anything else, and he's seen what's happened. In Ukraine, as it's moved to the West, in Georgia, Egypt, Libya, Belarus recently, and then Kazakhstan, we can walk through those kind of things, where they've he's seen the people rise up and protest and try to push back against anti-democratic or autocratic or corrupt 
leaders, and he worries that his population could see successful countries on their borders that have risen up against corrupt leaders and oftentimes kick them out. And that's a real threat to him. You know, he's essentially changed the constitution to make himself a, a lifetime dictator. And if countries on his periphery, Kazakhstan and Belarus and, and Ukraine and others, uh, become democratic countries, do things differently, that, that's a threat to him. So there's that's where the threat lies to Vladimir Putin. This is about him maintaining control as much as anything else. And then his second big interest is to have the U.S. out of Europe. He is a you know one of the largest countries in Europe, quite militarily powerful, and he wants the U.S. out of Europe. He wants to sort of redraw the security map of, of Europe so that he can deal with each of these states individually and, and bully them and push them around because he's larger than they are. So those are the two sort of bigger picture things that, that underlie what's happening here with Ukraine. So it, when Ukraine moved to the West and he decided to invade in 2014, um, it hasn't gone well for him. His war in the Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine, is sort of become this sort of frozen conflict where there's sort of inter interspersed fighting and and it doesn't appear that his side is sort of picking up momentum or winning. Ukraine is getting stronger and 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 starting to be able to defend itself. It's starting to to strengthen its institutions and maybe move more towards into the Western sort of sphere of influence. And so I think he sees that, you know, unless he does something radical, uh, he's going to sort of lose that influence that he so badly wants to have in Ukraine. What is the United States position toward Ukraine as it, as it, with regard to NATO? In NATO in general, we've had what we call sort of an open door policy, right? So countries can ask to join NATO, they can apply to join NATO. And if all of the NATO countries agree, then people can ascend and join into NATO. Now, there's been what's interesting about this, you know, quote unquote crisis is supposedly about NATO, Ukraine joining NATO is there's been no momentum. There's been nothing recently about Ukraine joining NATO. Sort of Ukraine sort of developing has some some corruption problems, these type of things. There's nothing that suggests that NATO was interested in trying to convince Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, Ukraine obviously just sort of as an aspiration would like to be join NATO because it gives them better protection against a Russian bully to the east. And we see now why they would want that because they're in the verge of possibly having an invasion of their own country, which would, would not have happened if they were part of NATO. And so this is a, this is a manufactured crisis. This is not something that, that came about because of something the West did, something Ukraine did. It's just Vladimir Putin sort of forcing, forcing the issue. And so Ukraine is, you know, in, important because it's a large country in Europe uh, that, you know, the stability of which is important to the West. And um, part of the problem that's what's happened is that uh, Putin has done a really good job of controlling sort of the narrative here. So a lot of people, when they talk about what's happening, they talk about, well, Putin has some legitimate fears, NATO expansion, NATO's moving towards his borders. Um, but essentially, NATO is a defensive alliance. People join NATO of their own free will. Sovereign countries join of their own free will um, because they feel threatened. And, and countries like Sweden and Finland, which have forever been neutral countries, are even now talking about joining NATO, not because of any aggressive 
interest in their part, but because of the actions of Putin and he's and his you know willingness to possibly invade neighbors and upset the Western stability, you know, lifelong neutral countries are now actually thinking about joining NATO. So NATO expanding is expanding because of the activity of Putin, not not because of NATO trying to expand for its own its own reasons here. So there's a, what's what's frustrating is it, that there's nothing that has happened that has forced this crisis. This was something that was manufactured completely by Vladimir Putin. That's really helpful because that's not the narrative that I get just from reading headlines at all. <laughs> well, the uh, Finnish president, interestingly enough, Ninisto on um, New Year's Eve gave a speech. You know, and I, I lived in Finland for a while. Uh, you know, I was in the embassy there, and you know, it's a neutral country. It, it in World War II, it fought against both the, the Russians and the Germans. The Soviet Union tried to invade Finland at the time, and it's ever since that time, it's been very careful not to not to upset their large neighbor, the Soviet Union or Russia. And so it's been neutral. It's been a neutral country that's that's worked well with both Russia and the and the West. But the Finnish president on New Year's Eve actually gave a speech, and he made it clear that hey, no one will bully us. We will decide if we want to join defensive alliances or not. And he even quoted. Uh, Henry Kissinger, and I, I have it here. I'll be, read this quote. He, the Finnish president said, quoting Henry Kissinger, whenever avoidance of war is the primary object of a group of powers, the international system has been at the mercy of its most ruthless member. And so what he's saying essentially is, you know, Putin is the one that's causing this problem. We, a neutral country, now see that this person is willing to upset the international balance, and we will do what we need to do to protect ourselves. And so I think that when you have Finland and Sweden pointing these things out, I think it it shows where the real problem is here. Let's talk about what's been happening on the diplomatic front. So Biden and Putin spoke several times last month, but that didn't result in a change in position on either side, uh, unsurprisingly. What role do these types of calls with foreign leaders play in the foreign policy and national security toolbox? Has that ha, have has the role of these types of calls changed? And can you help us understand sort of whether this is all for show uh, or or if there's actually some kind of meaningful dialogue happening? Well, I think Putin, you know, he runs this massive country, corrupt country with an economy you know the size of you know Portugal or or Italy even though it's a huge um you know massive country um and he came from he's a career KGB officer in the Soviet Union which was seen as one of the two great superpowers during the Cold War and and he sort of lived through the fall of the Soviet Union he lived through the you know living in what he thought was one of the most powerful countries in the world and finding themselves sort of pushed out of the center of, you know, sort of great power politics. And ever since that time, he's been, had, had grievances and resentments against that, has been trying to get back on the stage to be taken seriously as a great power. And so he's tried to revamp their military. He's tried to create these asymmetric means to do, you know, damages to, to other countries so people will pay attention to him and treat, treat him that way. And so he does benefit by the international order seeing President of the United States coming to his door to talk to him. You know, the President of the United States doesn't come to the door regularly of countries 
you know, with an economy the size of Portugal day in and day out. And so, you know, he sort of, I think, resents and misses the fact that and wants to make Russia again a key player, in, you know, in the international space. And even if that's for sort of negative reasons instead of positive reasons, I think that's okay for him. And so, yes, you know, international affairs is a complex business and personal relationships often can play a, a large role in that. But uh, we shouldn't sort of fool ourselves that just sort of occasional discussions and personal personal calls are things that are going to change sort of the interests of large powers and and, and do things. And so, yes, the, you know, I think Biden is right to talk to Putin, to make it clear where the U.S. stands, you know, where our red lines are and, and you know, what our expectations are. Um, but we're not really going to change Vladimir Putin. We've now had him 20 years in power. And, you know, we've tried over and over everything from resets to look in his eyes to accommodating him to trying to, to you know, work with him on, on various things. And he's continued to be in, engaged in this sort of ongoing political warfare against the West. So it, it's pretty clear now who he is and what he wants. He hates the West. He hates the United States. He wants the U.S. out of Europe. He's never going to be satisfied with any of these discussions or anything we had. He needs to be deterred, almost like in the Cold War. He needs to, we need to sort of keep him from causing massive destabilization and, and you know, bloodshed in, in Europe until he leaves power someday. Destabilizing Europe destabilizing Ukraine. Um, in November, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who our listeners will be very familiar with, uh, was on the other end of Donald Trump's now infamous, very perfect phone call uh, that got him impeached the first time. Um, Zelensky announced publicly that Russian representatives, put that in air quotes, were planning a coup to destabilize the country ahead of an invasion. Now, there hasn't been a coup yet, at least. Um, but can you lay out how Russia creates instability in other nations? And obviously we've felt it here in their election interference, but what are some of the other ways they try to do that to destabilize governments? Since the beginning, essentially the Bolshevik regime all through the, you know, the Soviet days, cold war and to today, they have been, you know, very big players in sort of asymmetric warfare, in this sort of trying to use means to keep their enemies and adversaries sort of off balance. And they've used a variety of tools. And just look to our election in 2016, these kind of things of disinformation, sort of sabotage and subversion of trying to, you know, just spread so many lies and, and through, through the system that it creates weakness and problems in Europe and places spending money, supporting right-wing groups, supporting violent groups. In, in Europe, they've done assassinations of people in you know other countries and that type of thing. Um, they've used cyber attacks. They've used ransomware attacks. They've used all of these kind of things to try to create sort of chaos, keep everybody you know off balance. And again, these are the tools of the weak against the strong rather than take on, you know, the U.S. or NATO armies directly, this is a way of trying to sort of weaken them slowly over time and hopefully get what they want without having to actually go to war. And so th this type of thing has happened, and it happened, it's happened probably more in Ukraine than anywhere else. So Vladimir Putin, you know, gave us, given several speeches and even wrote a paper recently where he talked about Ukraine and essentially said that Ukraine is not a real country. It's just simply a part of Russia and that therefore it, it, it he, he believes it does, shouldn't exist and 
you know, he should take it over. And so he has continued since 2014, since he's taken pieces of Ukraine to try to destabilize and, you know, create chaos there, hoping that the, the government will fall and it hasn't fallen. So therefore, maybe he's ready to take the next step and send in his own troops. So there's a there's a term that's come up recently, uh, false flag. Um, last week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan both let on that the U.S. has intelligence that Russia may use a false flag operation as pretext for an invasion of Ukraine. This term has obviously been tossed around, uh, particularly on the right wing, by conspiracy theorists for the last uh, number of years. But can you lay out exactly what a false flag is and why Russia would use one in this situation, if you think that's likely? <laughs> sure. So I spent my life, you know, my career at, at Central Intelligence Agency in the clandestine service. And the term false flag for us is, you know, our job is to meet foreigners who have access to information the U.S. government needs and can't get any other way and find ways to steal that information. And so often we will sort of work with someone who's in sort of has access to information in a foreign government or terrorist group, try to befriend that person, learn about what makes them tick, see if they're willing to commit treason against their country, and then try to protect them and keep them safe while they share that information with us. But one of the one of the ways of doing business is called a false flag. And so a false flag is I might, uh, you know, instead of pretending to be an American, pretend to be a German or an Irish person or a you know, Canadian or something else. So that if I'm appealing to someone who I want to commit espionage and that person hates America, but likes let me South Africa, for example, if I pretend to be a South African, if I can get that person to spy and provide me information, thinking he's providing information to South Africa, when in fact, it's he's providing to the United States, that's a false flag. Essentially, it's a way of tricking someone to provide information. And the Russians have used this quite often. We saw in 2010, there was 10 Russian illegals that were arrested in the United States. These were people who were pretending to be American citizens or Canadian citizens or, or Latin American citizens, but they were actually Russian intelligence officers or you know so that's a false flag it's essentially you know pretending to be something you're not to, to get something you need um and it's funny to see how these right-wing groups have used it because you know they're just they just sort of <laughs> like to pretend they're like junior paramilitary officers or spies it's or something cosplay. They, they understand yeah, no it's, it's, it's sort james of bond cosplay but, but, but but the russians have used this you know over the years many times in fact in world war ii you know, when it was time when they wanted to invade Poland, they put a bunch. They essentially, pulled the, the the Nazis used false flag. What they did is they, you know, took a bunch of people out of prisons, put them in in the Polish uniforms, and, and 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 then pretended like those guys had shot up some Nazi troops or something, and, and said, "Okay, well, this is provocative," and then use that as a excuse to invade. And so, this is something the Russians have been. Have been using forever. So what was really fascinating is recently, um, the U.S. government, the White House, and the administration essentially said that they have been collecting evidence that the, the Russians have been sending teams of people into the Ukraine uh, looking to find reasons to start a war, to pretend 
that they're Ukrainians and they're and they're killing Russians, or to pretend that they're Ukrainians and causing trouble to, to to start start chaos to start a war. So in other words, they just are looking for a reason, a pretext to blame the West or blame Ukraine, so that they can send their troops in. And so this is just a standard sort of, you know, play that that states like that sometimes do. So what is then the significance of? high-level U.S. officials sharing this information publicly? Does it does it undercut uh, Moscow's ability to actually execute on the false flag? Well, I, I think there's several things at play, and it's interesting to me that they did this. So clearly the fact that the, the administration uh, took what they thought was, you know, secret information that they collected either, you know, from the Ukrainians or through their own means and made this public is, Yes, they're putting Russia on notice that we know what you're doing. We see what you're doing. We're hoping that that, you know, makes them realize that they, they, that won't work. They shouldn't try to do that. On on one hand, it's also very interesting to me because you know that the the U.S. government is very careful with how it it, it shares information, what it does. So it, it suggests to me that they have quite good insight into what the Russians are up to here, uh, and they're you know the fact that they weren't afraid to share this means that. You know, they really believe there's a threat of of war here, and they wanted to even you know use what tools they have to try to stop that. Okay, let's talk about those tools in the context of the U.S. response. So last week, Helene Cooper, the New York Times Pentagon correspondent, reported that senior Biden administration officials are warning that the U.S. could throw its weight behind Ukraine if Russia invades. So. How does this compare to the U.S. response to the invasion of Crimea? Well, unfortunately, in 2014, there were a number of things that that I mean, we didn't push back hard enough and suggested some weakness. So when the Russians went into Crimea, and you remember they did this shortly after the Winter Olympics there, um, sort of hoping that the world wasn't paying attention, and they actually used means, instead of sending you know, Russian airplanes and Russian troops in with, with uniforms and stuff, they sent people in with with unmarked uniforms and things to suggest that maybe this was an internal uprising or something. And you know, by the time sort of the world paid attention after a few days, it was too late, and it was clear that these were Russians and that they had taken over Crimea. Um, there was slight pushback, but not much. A few sanctions, and essentially sent a signal to Vladimir Putin, like, "Wow, I took, I seized land in in Europe, something that hasn't been done since World War II." And there was almost no pushback. That sends a signal that, okay, uh, it suggests to me that NATO and the West and the United States isn't really willing to uh, push back to, you know, on the borderlands of my, my area. Um, I can continue to push and push till I find out where, they, where their red lines are and where they'll push back. And if you recall at the same, at the same time, uh, President Obama at the time had threatened that in Syria, if the Syrians use chemical weapons, that was a red line that would force us to 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 become involved and, and push back. And then the uh, Syrians, with Russian help, did use chemical weapons, and we didn't push back. And so I think, again, that's something that Putin and others saw as a signal that the United States, you know, frankly, if you will, is weak, is not really willing to stand up and push back where it counts. Now, you add to that you know, in the last decade or two, you know, we've we've had sort of failures in Iraq. We were defeated in Afghanistan. We were there 20 years and we had to sort of leave with, 
the tail between our legs. We've had incredible internal uh, fights, tribalism, and pushback. The, the January 6th shows that you know the country has a lot of internal problems and is internally focused. That the American people are pretty exhausted and sick of war. Um, the in Europe, there's you know places that Germany and these others are almost have, are more interested in doing business and and accommodating Putin than than pushing back. And so I, all of these things put together sort of suggest to Putin that there's room for him to push. There's room for him to take action uh, without serious consequence. And I worry about this also. Um, this weakness or that happening is is if Putin gets away with more again now similar to the pattern in the past this is something that you know the rest of the world is watching in namely china and and puts us in a really a really difficult position yeah especially when you consider we've talked about this on the show once or twice and as molly our friend molly McHugh has described it we now have this domestic uh, pincer of isolationism, as she describes it, where you have the the increasing sort of aversion to armed conflict or a or a or an American um, presence on the national stage, both from the left and the right. Whereas the, you know on the right, the sentiment can be summarized as you know it's not our job anymore, and on the left, it's not our right anymore to intervene in the world stage. And so I think um, to your point, you know Americans are sick of war. How much do you think uh, the domestic political winds are weighing on not just President Biden and the administration, but on the entire national security apparatus when when looking at potential conflict in this region? Yeah, we're a little bit on our back foot here. This is a, is a real problem. And I don't think, like we mentioned, you and I were talking before about sort of, we've sort of lost the narrative here where, where Putin seems to be saying things and and has a communication strategy, and ours seems to be sort of following up behind it. Part of the thing here is I don't think we've done a good job domestically of explaining why sort of the Western-led security uh, system is in our benefit worldwide. I think if you talk to most Americans, it would be very easy to say, what do we care? Why do we care about Ukraine? Why do we care about China? We've got our own problems. Let's focus inside. And I don't think you know, we've explained you know what incredible benefit the United States has gained from having allies around the world, from creating a sort of free economic worldwide market that is secure, that can move goods in, around the world, that sort of is a rule-based system, and you know, sort of as world leaders using the dollar as our main, is sort of the world's currency. You know, English is incredibly important. So you know, we've. We've almost sort of, you know, been spending all this time over these years to create this system and never really understood how central and valuable it is to us. Um, some of the things we've just seen in, in recent years of weaknesses in Europe, you know, with problems in Syria has created incredible refugee flows and problems and immigration problems into Europe, which has created real problems in, in Europe. I worry that a, a war in Ukraine could sort of you know, we, we're not paying attention to the possible ramifications. Massive numbers of refugees flowing out of Ukraine into Europe creates incredible instability, real problems, creates problems in the markets, in the economy. Um, you know, we will have to then try to reinforce and spend more money to try to help shore up those countries, both economically and militarily. And so I think we don't understand 
how important the system is that that we've created. And we also don't understand, I think, the ramifications of what Putin, if what Putin gets away with what he seems to want to do, what that will mean to us. And so it's very hard as the president of the United States to put, you know, potentially military assets at play or to, to put U.S. power at play to push back against Russia when most Americans, you know, the, the narrative is like, oh, we've been at war for 20 years. We're sick of it. Yeah. We need to focus inside. Yeah. And I mean, and not all wars are created equal. I mean, it's, 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 um, I think it's important to just, you know, to make the distinction between what was Afghanistan and what would be Ukraine. But, uh, but we really aren't conditioned to do that. Uh, not in no, our, in our... and, and it's so hard. Yeah, we we have been at, right. in many ways at war for a long time. And, yeah. and you know, if you if you put things together, is is a war in Europe <laughs> more important than this, you know the future of Afghanistan? It probably is. I mean, if if you put these next to each other, <laughs> this yeah. is far more important than, right. than you know Europe, Afghanistan. You could argue could have been a counterterrorism problem, and we could have dealt with it without necessarily putting massive U.S. troops into into Afghanistan's. But the problem is, you know, that's not the way the world works is, right. is these things have already happened. We're sort of, we have uh, debates inside about you know, what that has cost us and we have our own political problems. And so, you know, as we squabble amongst ourselves, dictators like Vladimir Putin and others who don't have a Congress that they have to talk to, who don't have to worry about public opinion. Um, so to the Chinese leader Xi and, and Putin, they can sort of move quickly and, and take action as they see fit, seeing our, you know, judging what they think is, is weakness on our part, or if not weakness, at least not paying attention. Because it accrues to their advantage, ultimately. Mm-hmm. As we think about, you know, the prospect of a new Cold War or a great power conflict, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to, uh, according to Cooper, senior Biden officials have made it clear to allies that uh, the CIA covertly and the Pentagon overtly would seek to help any Ukrainian insurgency. Now, without getting us into any trouble, John, can you explain what covert action the CIA might take um, to respond to an invasion? Ooh, there's, a, there's a variety of things here we sort of have to unpack. And so okay. there's some, I think this is meant to provide some deterrent to Putin. You're, we're, we're trying to convince Putin that there's a serious cost to be paid, and it's not just a sanctions economic cost. It's that if he decides to send troops in, um, there will be we're sharpening our continued sticks. fighting, continued insurgency, and insurgency that will, that will be supported in some fashion by the United States and the West. Sort of like if you look back to the U.S. support to um, – Afghan freedom fighters mm. fighting against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan back in 79 in that time period and, and you know, supporting a surgery. So the you know CIA and our military can, are probably training parts of the Ukrainian military service and intelligence service so that they have some capabilities to organize, to communicate, to gather and hide weapons so that they could fight if you know if the if the russians go in and take over ukraine they can continue guerrilla operations behind the lines and continue to fight against the russians my my fear with that and we i can, we can go back and talk more about what that what what that might mean is that you know there's a lot of options here for vladimir putin because he's sort of taken taken the aggressive stance here is he yes he could go in 
with tanks and men and try to take over Ukraine, create a government, run the government, and potentially, you know, create, you know, an insurgency against, you know, Russian overseers. But he doesn't have to do that. He can take smaller pieces of Ukraine that are more easily defendable. He can actually take his air force and, and others and go in and destroy the Ukrainian military, which would create incredible chaos and destabilization and probably make the government fall and leave without having to leave people behind that are that therefore creating an insurgency problem for himself. And so I think this, you know, us talking about that, I think that's incredibly important that we do that. I think we should make it clear and, and other countries have, the Baltic countries, the Sweden and Finland, others have said that, you know, they're going to try to help Ukraine defend itself. And I think that's important to make clear that, you know, this is not, this will not be something that's easily done for Vladimir Putin, even if it's important to him. And so the, you know, I think it's important that, that our military and intelligence establishment works with Ukraine, but frankly, we should have been doing it for quite a long time. This, you know, it's a li- the problem is now is since Putin has spun this up, this crisis, and we're all trying to sort of catch up to it. Is are we in time, or is this sort of, you know, we're we're hoping to create enough fluff that that Putin thinks that this is something that's, that's damaging to him, and he'll back off. But you know, he he's been paying attention much more closely to this region than we have for the last ten years. Let's uh, zoom out a little bit um, because we've talked about how important it is for Joe Biden to reestablish. America as the leader of the free world after four years of Donald Trump. How much is this uh, a test? How much will this ongoing effort to keep Russia out of Ukraine and 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 by extension Europe going to shape that effort? Wow, well, you know that's a, that's a really good point. We haven't talked much about Trump, and I don't want to. You know, get into we it, talked but, but, a lot about Trump. Well, I know, obviously, <laughs> not today. For, for this, there is, there is, you know, incredible problems that he's he's left us with here. So, European allies, who are we are all trying to sort of pull together here to show NATO solidarity that we're all focused in the same direction to push back against Russian, uh, you know, aggression. You ha- you're asking a lot of of the Germans and the French and others. You know, if if there was if Trump had never existed in the United States, it was clear that we are committed to European security. We're committed to NATO. We're committed to our allies. That we have a stable sort of government. That our institutions are working effectively. I think it would be a lot easier for them to just sign up and say, "Absolutely, we will follow the Americans wherever they lead." But having lived through Donald Trump and watching our system and worrying that that you know, as as well-meaning as this administration is. If a Trump or Trump-like person takes over again in 2024, realizing that, that that NATO could be undermined from the West, not from the East, and that allies will not be supported and the United States will not take interest in in, in supporting sort of the free world, this is something you know you're asking them to sign up to support us when they worry that we could pull the rug out from under them, and so the Trumpism has created this incredible problem and weakness for us it's 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 helped tyrants like putin and others because they're because they know that um you know there there's sort of supporters and of them in the united states and there's people who that you know want to undercut our allies which essentially is what he wants to do um and our allies are much more less are scared and worried that you know we're, we're 
unable mm-hmm. to follow up on our, our commitments. And so it's a real, it's a, it's a real problem because essentially deterrence, stopping right. somebody from doing something you don't want them to do depends on credibility. You ha- right. it has to be a, a threat has to be credible. It has to be clear that you are willing to follow through and do the things you need to do. And if, if we have another Trump like government, it's not clear the United States is credible and can follow through on the things that it says it will do. You know, you and I may have talked about this in a previous conversation, but it does strike me as uh, not not just ironic, but but honestly tragic that that for the Republican Party, who had for so long been so hawkish uh, uh, with their foreign policy, and particularly when it came to Russia, that that one of the legacies of the last Republican president is to have weakened America in this way. <laughs> and it, 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 it's, uh, and, and it's something that we don't discuss nearly enough. We talk about all of the scandals and the salacious stuff, but this is far more profound and, and damaging in a well, long term way. Oh, absolutely. That's why, you know, I mean, I left CIA and I had no intention of ever talking to the press or talking mm-hmm. to anybody, having any public role whatsoever. But as Trump came you in, blew the thing that, that really <laughs> that really scared me and upset me, aside from all the domestic political things and the things you just mentioned that are you know heinous in their own right, is that he was willing to weaken our institutions. And you know, essentially, it's taken many many years to sort of reform and create sort of an institutional structure where we have really uh, a government that runs by rule of law that has strong sort of institutions that can help sort of underpin. America's work in this complex world, you know, the, our military, our FBI, our intelligence agencies, you know, our Justice Department, all of it, you know, that can hold people accountable, all of these things, you know, these, these are jewels that I don't think the American people realize how important it is that, that, that public servants, you know, working on behalf of the United States, mission-driven, law-abiding, are, are so valuable to them. And Putin, or excuse me, Putin, <laughs> Trump, Trump was willing to undercut them for his own personal political gain. He wanted them to be essentially political weapons that he could use to attack his enemies, and he wanted them neutered in case they uncovered things that that were unfavorable to him. And of course, he does not care about U.S. security and in the rest of the world. And so, this you know, undercutting our institutions was something I thought. Was was very very damaging. Now institutions did hold. I mean, you know, he lost an election, and most of those institutions did the did the right thing. You know, the FBI continued to investigate, continued to look at things. In some cases, he lost over and over and over again. <laughs> Even the people who were looking into elections did the right things. But you know, a, a Trump or another Trump like person coming in could sort of weaken those institutions. And the same thing happened overseas. And so our allies and the people overseas, those relations that we build. Decades and decades of work behind the scenes, sharing information, helping each other, pushing things through to make that stuff has been incredibly important, and that and that can easily be undone if we're if we're not serious. <sighs> okay, so let's talk about the way you're watching this conflict unfold, John, because I think you know. Um, as I, as I, as I mentioned before we started recording, I think maybe for many people, their ears are just now perking up, uh, in the last several weeks because things seem to be escalating over there. And, and some people are probably wondering, well, okay, how serious is this going to get? Um, how close are we to a war? Uh, we just, you know, ended one and, and, and now it looks like there might be another one on the horizon. 
Um, so as we continue to watch this troop build up on the border and, you know, the sabers are rattling and some people believe that we might actually use it. Um, the tension between the U S and Russia hasn't been this high in a long time. So what are you watching? Um, uh, you know, as someone who's now out of the agency, um, what are going to be some indicators that the situation is either escalating or calming down? And, you know, for, for average Americans who are, who are, um, you know, worried about the pandemic, getting their kids back to school, inflation is rising, you know, how do I get through the next couple of weeks? And, you know, what do they need to know, uh, uh, about this situation and, and what would you leave them with? I think they need to know that this this is very, very serious. And even if Vladimir Putin does not choose to invade and, and, and take these actions that we worry about now, does not mean that the trouble is over. And because essentially, as I mentioned, he is someone who is not is not going to be satisfied with piecemeal negotiations and things. He's going to continue to escalate and create crises to get attention and get what he wants hope for to get things from us. And, and he will continue to do this kind of stuff. This, this game that he's playing can be played over and over and over again. He can create a crisis and then ask a price to de-escalate that crisis. That doesn't mean he won't act. He has invaded. He has sent troops into Georgia. He sent troops into Ukraine and in Moldova and these kind of places. So you have to think about Vladimir Putin as you know almost like an organized crime boss, right? He was a KGB officer. He's a dictator of a, a large Russian state, but he's also sort of an organized crime boss. And it's not even clear that he has decided yet whether what he's going to do, whether he's going to take a piece of Ukraine, whether he's going to continue to threaten, whether he's going to try to hope to get some sort of concessions and accommodations, or whether he's actually going to invade, and even if he invades, how, how he might do that. Again, it's it's his decision. His diplomats come to these negotiations, and they they negotiate, but they can't make decisions. They, they have to sort of go through the process and be able to come back to him and leave him enough room to do it do what he wants. So over the next you know, couple of weeks, I'm going to certainly be watching sort of the details of, of the movement of troops, the move, the movement of uh, you know, people, of gasoline, of kind of those type of things to, to show whether it's serious. But again, these are things that he can ramp up to try to threaten Ukraine and, and others or not. Um, and so I, I worry about the sort of the longer term problem here is, is Vladimir Putin is, you have a, large group of states in the West that are very internally focused, that really avoidance of war is the, is sort of the biggest thing to them. They want, they want to continue to, to you know, make money and continue to move their economies forward. And you have one player on the international scene who is willing to turn the whole table over. And so it's very easy for everybody to come to him and say, oh, please, you know, we'll give you ABC if you stop. But the problem is over time, he could start to gain gain things that cause us cause us real damage. If he gains a sphere of influence, the notion that we can actually give away the right of countries to defend themselves, um, you know, continue to weaken the, the bonds between allies, between us and, and the West. And so this is not something that even if Vladimir Putin steps back and doesn't choose to invade, it's, I think he's shown us that, that we have to stay engaged in these things. The United States needs to stay engaged in the world. We need to stay tight with our allies in the world because you know, a bad actor can can cause us, you know, incredible pain and incredible pain at home. I, I think that's the thing we don't get is this is going to affect markets. It's going to affect, you know, the way we deal with 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 friends around the world. 
last question um, before we leave, but in terms of U.S. influence on the national stage and and also to you know our daily lives here at home, how do you think about the prospect of an alliance between China and Russia? That's a, that's an interesting thing, and I think Putin wants to show that he is tied to China. Like China is, you know, they both have an interest. They both have an anti-West bent. They both have, they both have the same enemy in the United States. And so I think he wants to show that they are sort of tied at the hip here to to give himself more sort of strength and leverage. But what's interesting is, I think in the bigger picture, China is actually kind of a, a larger threat to Russia than the West and the United States are. You know, we don't have designs on Russia. Uh, and, and China is, you know, incredibly large country right on their borders um, that has, you know, to be population that's growing, that's going to be in that, that part of the world. And so I think, you know, in, a, in the bigger picture, I think China and Russia are not natural allies and that China is actually in many ways a sort of longer term threat to Russia. Now, the difference is, I just talked about Putin is someone who is willing to use asymmetric sort of warfare against us around the world because he wants to upset the international order. It doesn't work for him. The, the Western-led international order doesn't work. He wants to flip over the table. He wants to use threats and stuff that other people don't do to get his way. China, on the other hand, does not want to. China benefits tremendously from the international order. They are becoming fa- fantastically rich by by the flow of the free flow of goods and traffic throughout the world they want to own the international order they want to they want to grow so much that they're so powerful economically politically militarily that they sort of are, are the preeminent power in the world so they're not looking to undercut things like russia so they're very different sort of states right russia is trying to you know make us pay attention to it by you know having a hissy fit every now and again whereas china they want to own us. They want to own all of us. And therefore, it's, they have a different sort of mentality. So yeah, they'll play along with Russia because Russia has, you know, is, is causing us pain and that's good for them in the short term. But I don't think there's a natural sort of alliance there that we over the long term have to worry about that. I think we have to deal with Russia. Um, but, you know, the administration is right. The administration says we want a predictable and stable relationship with Russia because we want to focus on China. I think the focus on China part is absolutely right. Over the next 30, 40 years, that's where the United States needs to really put its put its marbles and pay attention and create a relationship with a competitive China. But the stable and predictable with Russia, it just won't happen because Vladimir Putin doesn't want a stable and predictable relationship. He wants to continue to cause trouble and, and have information and political warfare against us. And, and, and so we just have to be faced facts face that there's you know he's at war with us so therefore we have to engage we have to deter him everybody says bad things oh we don't want a new cold war but in a certain sense you know it's not our choice he is at war with us the cold war was essentially containment and deterrence to stop a, a power against conquest in the world and so the cold war was actually quite effective deterrence worked you know our long term sort of stability and pushing back worked. And so if Vladimir Putin is at war with us, we have to acknowledge what's happening. We have to be strong Accept enough it. to push back and contain that threat so that we can focus on bigger issues like with China and stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, 
terms, yeah, we don't want a cold war, but essentially when someone puts us in a position where they're going to continue to cause us pain unless we are serious and steadfast, then you know, maybe we do need to focus on deterrence and containment. John Seifer, before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? <laughs> where am I on the internet? <laughs> I'm on Twitter, John underscore Seifer. Mostly, I don't think that's that's my main place, I guess. <laughs> it is... Uh, it's weird having lived undercover for all these years. <laughs> to to be, be found. I was hiding. It is... Um, it, it's always a, uh, a pleasure to talk to you. I always learn so much. So thank you for uh, making the time today. And, and I know we'll talk to you soon. Well, good, Ron. Thanks. You're doing a great job. Appreciate it. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.